Hi folks, this is Shaq Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Wednesday, February the 15th, 2017. Valentine's Day after day. Yep, so hopefully you guys had a great Valentine's Day yesterday. Uh, we did here. We cooked, uh, we cooked at home. We didn't go out. We cooked... Uh, Risotto, uh, which is non-paleo, but I'll tell you why we did that in a minute. Risotto with roasted beets and pan-seared salmon, pan-seared herbed salmon. That was our, our dinner last night, and we have been trying out a thing called plated. It's pretty cool. It's uh, They send you your food each week. You get two meals a week. It's the one we signed up for. I don't know if we'll do it for a real long time, but... It's making us stretch and get out of our cooking comfort zone. So that was fun to do with the wife last night. Hope you enjoyed your Valentine's Day. So we're not talking about cooking today, though. We're talking about cryptocurrency, most well-known one, of course, being Bitcoin. I've got a guy named uh, Chris Coney uh, that will be with us in just a bit, also known as the Marketing Monk and the founder of Cryptoversity, an online university that teaches you about cryptocurrency And somehow, we're going to find out about that today, pays you to learn. I'm interested in learning about being paid to learn rather than paying to learn. That sounds kind of cool. Anyway, uh, I've covered Bitcoin and Ether and things like that and the basics of it and using uh, tools like Coinbase uh, on the air before, but I am far from a cryptocurrency uh, expert. I think Chris is one of those people that you would put in the expert category, really knows what he's doing. We're not just going to talk about cryptocurrency either today. We're talking about blockchain technology and, and how it's kind of the next logical step in a big transition in the world. This is a transition from vertically integrated organizations with hierarchical power structures into flat peer-to-peer networked organizations. That sounds an awful lot like something that I, I kind of came up with, I think, first person publicly come up with the idea of virtual nations to me. Uh, many years ago I floated that, and then we've seen things like BitNation show up since then. Uh, I'm sure he's talking about things like that, and if it's not exactly that. Anyway, we'll have Chris on a bit. He can tell you all about blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and where it's headed. What's next for the blockchain world? Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. Next up, uh, I have for you guys the year that was the episode. We have uh, new contributors showing up on the wiki, and I think that's awesome. We have uh, Alex Shrugged, as always, as kind of the anchor here, but we also have South Bob Ben chiming in today. And we have a new fellow, Brian in Tennessee, Brian TN, uh, showing up. Operation Ajax tells us about that. And uh, oil going on in the Middle East. So let's uh, take a look at the seg segments we have today. We have The Secret is Out. The polio vaccine is here. 
we also have MK Ultra making super spies out of citizens. I'm going to read that one because that's an important thing they usually don't tell you about in high school. Uh, the death of Stalin we have. That's coming in from South Bob Benning. Kermit saves the day or a regime change for oil by Brian Tien. Notable births this year. Gary Johnson, uh, Tony Blair, Jeb Bush, Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize economist, and Alex tells us they also gave a PLL terrorist, uh, PLO terrorist the Peace Prize. I don't read too much into it. Yeah, they gave a U.S. president the Peace Prize as bombs were falling on other people. So, yeah, I've lost a lot of respect for the whole Nobel thing. Uh, in entertainment, Tim, Tim Allen was born this year from the Santa Claus and Galaxy Quest and Buzz Lightyear and Last Man Standing and <laughs> more power, right? Hulk Hogan born this year. Cole Meany. Who's Cole Meany? Chief O'Brien from Star Trek. And Dennis Miller, Saturday Night Live comedian, radio talk show host. And Mary Steenburgen uh, was born this year from One Magic Christmas, The Butcher's Wife, Proposal, and more. Uh, the, most, the movie I liked the most that she was in, she played a very minor role in and that's probably why I liked it. It was Elf. Remember Elf? Buddy the Elf? Um, I never liked Mary Steenburgen. Not because she did anything wrong. She's like a... She's like a piece of candy that's too sweet. You just, it's, it's too much. You just, eh, eh, go away. That's my opinion, though. This year in film, we have The Robe, Disney's Peter Pan, House of Wax, and How to Marry a Millionaire. This year in music, we have That's Amore, Your Cheatin' Heart by Hank Williams. He dies in January of this year. And How Much Is That Doggy in the Window by Patty Page. None of which were the number one song of the year. The number one song of the year, also like That's Amore, has foreign words in the title, but it's not Italian. It will be Spanish. It will be one of the most co covered songs there is. You'll have to wait till the end of the episode, unless you've already guessed what it is, to hear it. In other news, the USSR now has the H-bomb. Yay, the Cold War has really begun. Collective Agriculture in Germany, Walter Obrich, first secretary of East Germany, declares East German agriculture will be collectivized. And the doctors plot. In the USSR, many prestigious doctors, mostly Jews, were alleged to be plotting to poison the political and military leaders by the Pravda, which was the paper and the press of the time. Okay, so the one I want to read for you is MK Ultra, Making Super Spies Out of Citizens. Your CIA has a little project in the works. They call it Project MK Ultra. It is an experiment in mind control. Not to worry, they aren't conducting the study without help. They have farmed out pieces of it to 149 universities, research facilities, hospitals, prisons, and pharmaceutical companies. Many of them have no idea they are working for the CIA. Some of them are fully aware, but you can trust them. They're from the government, right? Drugs are used, such as LSD, sensory deprivation, verbal and sexual abuse, as well as psychological torture. After the Watergate scandal in 1973, the CIA will stop the MK Ultra project, and the core documentation will go into a shredder. Final oversight of this project will come in the form of Freedom of Information Act request 25 years later. Thousands of documents with incidental mentions of MKUltra will spill out, prompting a Senate hearing. By the time your government guardians get on the dime, the project will be long gone. Several Americans will be killed, having been administered drugs and other procedures that simply rendered them dead without prior knowledge of the risk or nor their consent. Have a nice day. Alex, Alex Shrug says... Emergency reboot. Hello, Siri. Make an appointment on my calendar. Earliest possible date to visit the contact officer. Thank you, Siri. Shut down. Um, here's my thing about things like MKUltra. They never go away. They 
fade away and other programs replace them. You could say what you want about Jesse Ventura, and in some ways I think he is a certified nut job. But he did have a show Conspiracy Theory. And he did an episode called The Police State about this kind of thing going on now with things like doctors and dentists being paid to feed the government information on the patients and things like that. The interesting thing was that that episode never aired again. It disappeared off of people's DVRs. That's not a conspiracy thing uh, theory. That's a conspiracy fact. Our, our government is still engaged in activities like this. I, I don't necessarily think they're giving people LSD anymore, but only because it didn't work the way they thought it might. I, I really want you to think about these things, and, and, and you know, Google things like uh, Project Northwoods. When you trust the state with anything, specifically with the ability to take the life of one of our citizens. This is what's changed my opinion on the death penalty. My opinion on the death penalty is I'm no longer for it. I'm absolutely for taking a person who, let's say, has raped a child or, or murdered a person and putting a bullet in their head and burying them in the ground. Uh, what I'm not for is trusting the state to make the right decision in doing that anymore. I've seen too many things like this and like, you know, prosecutors hiding evidence because, well, I can get a conviction if I hide evidence. My take by Jack Spierko. I know it doesn't all lodge in together, but it is how I feel about it. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only. And yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files. So you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. And with that wrapped up, let's get our special guest on the line and talk all about cryptocurrencies in the blockchain. I'm kind of jazzed about it. Again, he is the founder of Cryptoversity. He's also known as the Marketing Monk, better known as Chris Coney. Hey, Chris, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. I am absolutely excited to be here, Jack. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for uh, for joining us all the way from the UK, man. Um, you've not been on the show before. I kind of gave the audience a little bit of your bio in the the intro segment, but can you tell us who who the heck is Chris, man? Let's let's take it back to like you're in. I, I don't know what to call it. Imagine high school, like last year of, of of you know traditional school. You're trying to figure out what to do with your life. How do you end up founding a thing like Cryptoversity from from that point? What what led you into this world? It's a good question. Uh, I think we call it secondary school. Um, can you you have high school? You have it for a year longer than we do. Okay. That's by the by. And we have college and university are two different things. So this the secondary school thing, which was when I would be what sixteen, seventeen. Sure. You leave school at sixteen, right? Yeah. Uh, I hadn't figured it out by then, to be perfectly honest with you. Where, where I was at in my mind at that time was I, I narrowed it down to I thought I was going to go into business management of some kind. I don't know how I came to that conclusion. To be honest, given that I was I was a bit of a loner at school, I was quite a, I quite preferred to observe the world, trying to figure it out. 
you know, so I didn't have a big social circle. I was literally like very aloof, if, if that's the right word. Uh, and I much prefer to try and figure out what's going on here, right? Just studying people's behavior and the, the, the infrastructure, the, the organization I was part of, the school system, how does that work? Why are we here? All that sort of stuff was always running through my mind. And as a child, of course, I didn't even have the worldly knowledge to even process those kinds of questions. So it was a very confusing time for me back in school. But we do have this thing, when you have a career counsellor, I think they call it in, in England, where you, know, you sit down with some government employee and they, they basically <laughs> limit your future to a, a set of options, right? Which is horrific to me now, having got older and much more worldly wise. I think this is absolutely horrific that you say, you know, so where do you want to, what do you want to go with your career? And the first assumption, which of course, kids have no wisdom to, to see beyond this, but they are squarely driving you into the employment machine, right? Our job, our nine to five, and that is, we're programmed with, that's just what you do, right? That, and that's, if you're not taught an alternative, that becomes the only way to make a living. And to me, that's one of the most horrific things about that experience was, you just go, oh, well, you know, I'll just accept that. And okay, I mean, you have to give them an answer. Because otherwise you get judged and ridiculed for not knowing what the hell you want to do. <laughs> which, which is 16, is, to me it's ridiculous anyway. It's absolutely ridiculous, right? Um, I'm, I was actually just looking on your site a previous episode. You, know, you can follow your passion, you have to find it. I believe that's what the school system should be helping people to do. You know, figure out their own strengths, weaknesses, the gifts, talents and abilities. And then once you've got that bit, then maybe you can build a career on top, right? Absolutely. But, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't figure out uh, it was it was a constant process and I did a computer science degree that was obviously after I left school and so on I did a computer science degree just purely because that's what I was into I was always into you know, building computers and and I think I've, I'm built with kind of a logical mind and um, so I kind of like the idea that computers are quite precise programming is quite precise you know I like that kind of stuff that if you do this it will always produce the same result type of thing. Uh, I guess that was something I struggled with as a kid was certainty, uh, or, or I struggled with uncertainty, which is probably what drew me to computers, is because they're very, very precise, predictable, and all the rest of it. So I did a computer science degree purely because that's what I was into, and I figured, well, rather than try and figure out a career you know, in a short space of time, let, let me do a, a degree that I'm interested in, make sure I actually get a good grade, uh, versus trying to second-guess my career and do something I might end up, and end up liking and, you know, flopping it or whatever. So, coming out of university, I, uh, no, one, no one would actually employ me. I uh, spent about six months driving all over the country, going into interviews and for to this job, that job, graduate opportunity, this, that and the other. No one would give me a job. Nobody. They all turned me down, didn't call me back, etc. I started to panic about this a little bit because... The, the more time went by after I'd left university and graduated, the more I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to become a statistic. You know, so only a certain portion of graduates are still unemployed after a certain amount of time. I think I must have read that somewhere. Like, only like 20% of graduates are still unemployed after three months or something. Now, bear in mind, that sounds ridiculous by today's standards, but this was back in, what, 2003, 2004. So... It was quite normal for a graduate to get a job very, very quickly afterwards. It's not like um, the struggle that the kids have today. But anyway, it was still a concern. I didn't want to be a statistic. I didn't want to be a loser, I guess. 
was what I was telling myself. So ultimately I thought, oh well, you know, my dad's always been self-employed. I always figured one day I would uh, set up my own business, so it's going to have to be that way then. I may as well do it now because no one else is going to give me a job and I'm not spending another six months on the road and having doors slammed in my face. So that was that. I set up um, a web design agency to begin with. I actually bought into a franchise, which was horrifically expensive. <laughs> I, uh, I actually, 22 years old, I went to the bank and when was this, 2005, when uh, they were lending money to anybody and everybody. So I just went to the bank and said, hey, you know, my dad banks with you guys. Can you lend me uh, 35,000 pounds, please? Which is what? 50 or $60,000, right? Sure, yeah. 20, 22 years old, never had a job, no life experience, no business experience, two-page business plan. They said, sure. There you go, right? <laughs> Off you go. You say again, mate. Off you go, right? Off you go. Yeah, exactly. I was like, well, I'm going to buy this franchise. That's probably they weren't that stupid. They uh, they at least knew I was going to invest in a you know a franchise which was had a greater chance of success than me just uh, starting sure. from from nothing. Anyway, I've learned a lot about franchises, mainly that they're not particularly interested in your success. They're far more interested in the fifty to sixty thousand dollar franchise fee that you pay them on day one. So that that hit. that was kind of a uh, baptism of fire, you know, apprenticeship type of thing. Sink or swim. So I had to learn about business ASAP, otherwise I was going to be in the hole, right? So that that taught me a lot, and I actually learned a lot more about you know computers and web design on the go. On top of my computer science degree, didn't really enjoy that stuff to be honest, just because it was so hard, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I hated uncertainty. So all of that in a big soup was pretty excruciating for me. Um, I ended up um, starting two other agencies after that based on my experience and what I learned. And then finally in 2014, I think it was, I sold the company to my co-director and then, because I got to a point of dissatisfaction where I was like, I don't, still, still don't quite know what I want to do and what my purpose is in life and so on, but what I do know now is this is not it. And I think if, any, if you get to that point and you have a certainty that, well, it's not this, that's good enough to make a decision on, right? And sure. this has been, I've been doing it, well, from 22 until, uh, well, it was like 10, 10 years maybe, seven, seven or eight years probably, doing the same thing and just going through the motions. And I thought, wow, this is, I can't do this forever. You know, just wore me down. Anyway, um, how cryptoversity came from all that was, I guess I had the background in the technology side of things, computer science, and that was something that was interesting to me. And I'd always had a fascination with economics, which was something else I studied to try and help me in my business struggles. And I always found business really, really hard because I didn't, I just didn't know, I just know how to run a business. So I thought, well, I should probably study you know, economics and figure out how money works. And I thought, okay, you have to be able to sell, so I might have to study some psychology, right? And that led me into all kinds of other areas. Um, and then I had to figure out about how to market your business, so by default I learned all about marketing and so on. So over time, what I didn't know was, it was almost like I was being prepared for the day that I discovered like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I can't remember when that, when that day was, though, to be honest. Um, Bitcoin was one of those things that I sort of heard about it, and we hear about a lot of these technologies, and you sort of, you know, you brush them off to begin with as, oh yeah, sounds interesting. And then over time, they kind of you get re-exposed to them, and then again, and then again, and you sort of go, hmm, every time it comes back to you, or to me in this case, it was like, huh, took a bit more notice of it, looked into it a little bit more, dropped it, 
Next time it came along, did you do it a bit more? Huh. And gradually my curiosity grew until I'd done enough haphazard research to go, oh my goodness, I think I need to take this more seriously. So down the rabbit hole I went, and uh, how Cryptoversity got born out of that was, I read this book actually during my study of sales and marketing. It's called 80-20 Sales and Marketing by Perry Marshall. And it's the Pareto principle, like 80% of the results comes from 20% of the effort and all that sort of stuff. And in that very book, he's talking about how to use leverage. Like, don't work hard, work smart. And one of the exercises in that book is to kind of do the self-inventory. He basically said, email like five or six people that you know very well and trust and ask them these questions. Like, what am I good at? What stands out? What am I bad at? All this sort of stuff. So I did it. I sent the email out. And I categorically got back the same thing, the same answers. And then based on the exercise in the book, I formed um, what Prey Marshall calls like your, your competency zone or something it's called. And what I discovered from that through people reflecting it back to me was that um, my unique gifts, talents, and abilities were the ability to communicate like knowledge and information in such a way that makes people feel like respected rather than patronized, which is often why people don't like school or learning stuff. It's because teachers tend to be intellectually arrogant and the, the, the student feels bad for not knowing. And the feedback I got was that I somehow have this gift to impart knowledge and teach people without making them feel stupid, right? And I, I, that was a that was an eye opener to me because I was obviously doing that anyway because these people noticed it about me. I thought, okay, if that really is my you know my skill zone, cool. So this was right alongside me discovering Bitcoin and researching it. And I thought, well, light bulb moment one day. I thought, do you know what's really missing in this industry? There's all people on forums and Reddit and this and that, lots of new people wanting to get into this Bitcoin and cryptocurrency stuff, but there's so many questions and there seems to be almost little to no material on, on like training materials, courses, no one's doing this. So that was the light bulb moment. Okay, I've just discovered what my kind of core gift is and I've just absorbed all this knowledge about Bitcoin and figured out how it works, well, why don't I give the service to the community and put those two things together and establish some kind of you know, educational institution that teaches people um, from the ground up and how to apply this stuff. And cryptoversity was actually just a bolt from the blue idea. It was like cryptocurrency university. Like what cryptoversity was kind of a cute name, so I just ran with it. I didn't really overthink it. I just thought, right, I'm going to start doing it. Registered the domain name, threw up a little website, and just made it up as I went along. And that's been going like two years now. Awesome. And, I mean, there's a lot of great businesses that start that way. I'm big on when I teach people about business, like saying, like, once you know what you're doing, you got to come up with a plan, a revenue model, all that stuff. But when you, you're not sure what you want to do, just kind of fly on by the seat of your pants. Sometimes you, you, you fall in. And I, it's, it's funny the way you describe that is, like, everything I was doing without my knowledge was leading me up to the point where I would do this. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's kind of exactly how I feel about what I do here with this podcast, the, the background, all of the stuff that, including a lot of stuff I really didn't want to do, has now been beneficial, right? Um, so that's cool, man. Um, since we're, we're here to talk about cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and all that stuff, let's start out with Bitcoin specifically. What's all the hype about? What's the big deal? Uh, does Bitcoin deserve as much hype as it gets? Does it deserve the hype? Uh, to that, I would say, if you look at Bitcoin and its future over a long enough time horizon, 
I don't think you could overstate it or overhype it, right? It's it's that big, uh, given given a longer time horizon. I do think though that the mistake even I made when I first came across it was like how quickly that transformation is going to happen, right? As soon as we see the vision of what the world could be like. It, the mind can go into the future very, very quickly, like in an instant. Mm. We, you can rewrite your memory, fast forward it, come back to the present, but physical reality doesn't move as fast as that, and that's what kind of sometimes stresses us out when we find something as groundbreaking as the internet or as Bitcoin. We kind of want to just fast forward the movie to the good bit, right? <laughs> Which, you know what I'm saying? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot longer than we would probably like, but eventually um, we don't even know the, it's like the unknown unknowns. It's going to change things we don't even conceive of yet. Even I can't conceive it. I don't think anyone can fully comprehend the impact. It's kind of like when the internet was first invented and we would never, ever, ever have imagined what we have today, right? It just wasn't even a, twit, a blink in our eye. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of put it like this, like kind of evading what you're saying. Online video was inevitable, mm-hmm. but YouTube was not inevitable. Right. right, the form in which it would take and be its most popular or most successful was wide open, and like even now, YouTube. If you said what's the number one video site on the, online, you'd say YouTube. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that YouTube absolutely will be the number one online video site ten years from now? No, right. no it, it might be. You know, but that doesn't mean it's going to be. And I think that's a lot of like stuff with Bitcoin is we don't even really know yet. Right, and even more than that, Jack. Right. The, the way the internet was built, it's really not built to handle streaming video like we do today. Yeah. It's really not built for that. No. So you know, some really smart people had to figure out like additional layers on top of the internet protocols. and Because to do what YouTube does, that's a hard problem to solve. It's a miracle, mate, what they did in terms of the technology to make that possible. And now you just pick up your phone, you know, you load up the YouTube app, and you get... 4K streaming video straight to your little four-inch screen like it's nothing, right? And you got people and like me running around with a with an iPhone, shooting, you know, hot HD video, and uploading it from that phone and having it visible to people three minutes after I upload. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, for me, I've been a I've been a techno guy for well most of my life. It's been, but even I, it's a sense. It's kind of a you step back in humility and go, wow, right? Even though. Like even the even the most technically knowledgeable people, I think, could benefit from that. Just stepping back, and even though we understand how this stuff works, you have to appreciate the spectacle. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, and you think about this too. Like one of the reasons Google bought YouTube way way back in the day when they did, they had so much flipping cash on hand, they were afraid they were going to be forced to basically like be turned into a mutual fund because instead of a company, they had they had too much capital. In, in, in pure cash. And, and like, so when they bought YouTube, people are like, boy, I, I don't know. And today, that's like one of the smartest purchases made, you know, in the last 20 years. Absolutely. And it looked like an insane. So, yeah, that was what was insane. People saw that deal and it looked insane because YouTube was not profitable. It was losing tons of money, right? Back then, the bandwidth costs, server costs, storage costs, it was a dog, right? But Google was probably the, one of the few companies that had the deep pockets to stand that kind of a loss. But this is what true vision is. They knew the trend of technology getting cheaper, like bandwidth getting cheaper, hard drives getting cheaper, and so on. 
they also knew as that curve went down, the cost of delivering the service went down. And, you know, most digital uh, delivery systems, they trend towards zero cost or fractions of pennies, right, which is near enough zero. So they knew that was going to happen. And at the same time, they could also see a trend where marketing and advertising revenues were moving online. So they could see the revenue line dramatically increasing over time and their cost base diminishing to almost zero. So they must have done a calculation and thought, okay, at some point in time, those lines are going to cross. And that's the point where we're going to be breaking even. However, the costs are going to continue to climb towards zero as the revenues go into the stratosphere. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the comparison between how much YouTube can charge for their advertising versus the cost of delivering the videos is so wide. It's like a hugely, hugely profitable business. But that requires two things. One, the pockets, the deep pockets to stand that kind of a loss for that amount of time and also the foresight to see that far into the future. Yeah, man, absolutely. So when we, we look at Bitcoin, uh, kind of thinking about the like, so YouTube is this underlying infrastructure of the video, right? The video is just mm -hmm. a piece. It, when we look at Bitcoin, kind of the blockchain technology is that underlying delivery platform. So I, some people think that the blockchain itself is a bigger deal than Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Do, do you think that's true? And if so, why? Okay. Well, I, I hear a lot these days about there being a risk of us moving into, what do they call it, a society of post-truth, right? And I see a portion of society thinking that like everything's relative, they say. There's no such thing as right or wrong, and there's no good or bad. It's all a matter of you know subjective perception and stuff like this. Well, blockchain technology, at its very core, it provides an objective record of the truth, right? That cannot be denied because it's recorded in a blockchain, which is essentially a database that's distributed all across the internet that cannot be changed on a whim. So it is literally a a record of the truth that everybody agrees on. So as random as and as chaotic as our universe may seem at first glance, it's still based on certain constants like mathematical constants, gravity, the speed of light, pi, and so on. And there has to be a foundation that never changes in order for anything to be built on top of it. So the universe is built on those kind of mathematical constants. And any, you take any process in the world that requires this unchangeable record of the truth, and they can use that as the base and build a blockchain on it and apply it to that industry. So, I mean, <laughs> most industries could benefit from agreeing on what the truth is and what happened in history. So in that regard, blockchain technology is um, it's a truth technology. So however, however valuable it is to know what's true and what's false, that's how valuable blockchain technology is. It might be a reason as, as, as much as it seems like government and the state doesn't like Bitcoin, that they probably like this, uh, this, this constant record of the undeniable truth even less. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> what, we, uh, what we get taught in school about history, for example, we assume that's all been fact-checked and it doesn't have uh, any bias or hidden agenda behind it. Again, when we're children, how do we know any different? We are at the complete mercy of our parents, our teachers, and our educators. Well, you believe um, what your parents tell you, right? Now, right. 
add to that that they believe what they're telling you. Mm-hmm. And the level of, uh, of propaganda success is extremely high. Right. I agree. Uh, the way I say that is that it's, it's kind of, <laughs> this is a funny dichotomy. It, it's, it's the fault of our parents. Um, but it's not their responsibility. Mm. Right. And that, the way, the way I reconcile that is that the fact of the matter is that parents don't know everything there is to know about living. They can't, right? Until we reach an enlightened society where we're raising children with enlightened parents that don't ever make a mistake or have no mental delusions whatsoever, that's, that's going to happen. We're all going to get conditioned with some kind of limitations, right? But that's fine, because otherwise we'd have nothing to do in life, right? We'd, we'd have no personal growth to do. So, yeah, while, while our parents, teachers, and educators did and kind of install a lot of limitations in us, uh, that, just, that just gives me a project to work You know, I could treat my personal growth as a project. And another principle of mine is you never blame the person, you blame the system. Because that's our parents and we are products of the system. It's the system that is flawed, not the people. They're also a slave to the system, which is why the system needs to change. Gotcha, man. Um, so if Bitcoin was born in 2009 and it's as good as you and I think it is, Why isn't it more mainstream adopted today? I, I think in some ways it is because there's so many ways that you can use it, so many places you can spend it with mm-hmm. merchants and things like that. But in other ways, it's it's it, so comparing it to PayPal, right? I remember when I got my first PayPal debit card, mm-hmm. and I would go into a, it was a, it was you know, a Mastercard debit card or a Visa debit card. I don't remember which one it was, but it was one or the other. And you'd go into a place and They would take it because it was a debit card or you could run it as a credit card. But just the fact that it said PayPal on it, they, they'd look at it a little funny. Like, oh, that's that weird online PayPal thing. Like, it, like almost like a little skeptical. Today, yes. almost everybody out there has a PayPal account. Unless for some reason they hate PayPal, right? Okay. right. They either have one or they hate PayPal. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin, you, you know, going from 2009 to today, And you think, well, all I can think about 2009 is, gee, I wish I would have believed in this thing in 2009 mm-hmm. and put like 10 grand in it because right. I wouldn't be doing, th- I'd be fishing and say what now or something right now. But it right. hasn't, even with its success, it hasn't really caught on. Why do you think that is? I like your uh, comparison to PayPal because it's really funny that what happened to PayPal when they started out And the way it was tarnished with a scam and yeah. all this sort of stuff is exactly the same rhetoric that's being applied to Bitcoin. I think back you know, the phishing emails and, and uh, fraud and people posing as PayPal, it was quite popular in the early days of the Internet when, you know, I suppose most people are naive to uh, phishing scams now. But when the Internet first came along and we just started to get used to buying online, the favorite tactic of the scammers was to pretend to send emails from PayPal. Um, and, and that really, I believe, tarnished PayPal's brand for many, many years and almost had the PayPal brand synonymous with, oh, that, oh PayPal, oh, that's uh, scam. You know, that. Now, that is exactly the same propaganda that's happening to Bitcoin right now, which I think is it's almost identical, right? But now PayPal is the kind of the standard accepted. Oh, yeah, PayPal, of course, everyone uses that. Um, And Bitcoin's exhibiting the sort of same, uh, being the victim of the same thing. So the question of 
why hasn't Bitcoin hit that level of adoption yet? The, the, I, I kind of struggle to to define what mainstream adoption doctrine would look like. I, I often ask people this, and the I guess the consensus is like as soon as your your average uh, grandma can can use it on their phone, right? That would be the when it, when Bitcoin has made it to the masses. There's another thing here, though. Again, on a on a, on a higher level, like every, every system, whether it's a belief system or a financial system, will resist change, right? Because systems resist change because change brings a certain amount of instability, and instability brings with it the possibility, however small, that the old system will die, right? And the old system doesn't want to die, so it has a life of its own, and it wants to preserve its life and being the survival podcast, I'm sure everyone can relate to that. That's sure, what we do. So while while I have a certain amount of compassion for the dying, it is an inevitable <laughs> part of life, right? Yeah. So the the old system is kind of resisting the inevitable. So with that said, the existing financial system is actively resisting the change to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which is kind of like uh, the analogy I would give to that is: imagine strapping weights to the le- the legs of a baby. While it's trying to learn to walk, right? Mm. It's kind of holding. That's that's cruel. But that's kind of what's happening with the existing financial system. Bitcoin is still very young, and it's trying to find its feet. And it's trying to learn to walk and talk and so on. And there's active resistance to it, and it's completely unfair because it's a big behemoth financial system, and this little baby Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency industry that's being suppressed, repressed, you know, whatever you want to call it. So that I think that's a lot, a lot to do with it. I mean, imagine the difference if if the mainstream financial system, even half of it, got behind Bitcoin. Oh, that would be a whole different story. Well, yeah, there's a big reason they don't want to. It, it, it's it's it, they make money every time money moves, and this right. stops that. Um, and I think that's part of why they didn't like PayPal at first, but then they kind of looked at PayPal and went, oh, they're just sort of like through this hybrid between a merchant account and a bank account and most people are going to link their bank accounts to it and they're going to be moving money in and out of the bank back and forth through PayPal that means it doesn't really change the system so we don't need to fight this thing so much and I think the biggest contribution PayPal made to the world was empowering entrepreneurs because mm-hmm. in, in five minutes you could have a website set up and be charging customers um, and whether they had a PayPal account or not didn't matter. They could use their credit card and pay mm-hmm. you through PayPal, and that also made the banks happy. Uh, I guess the closest corollary to PayPal in the Bitcoin world is Coinbase, and, mm-hmm. and, and they've made it much. I, I use them to take uh, Bitcoin on, on the Survival Podcast website, but there's nowhere near the advantage for the existing system to accept Bitcoin unless they fully embrace it and, and, and use it themselves. That's the only way yes. it really works for them. And, man, that, you're talking about jobs being lost and all. And the people making decisions might be the ones losing jobs. It's, it's, a, big, uh, it, it's a big hurdle. I used to work for a company uh, out of the U.K., honestly, uh, called Syrian, that did website optimization for the mm-hmm. cellular networks. And it was a product you sold at the you know, C level, but you're selling it to people that maybe won't put them out of business, out of work, but it's going to put like half their department out of work. Right. Not real hip on it. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Partly because they have a heart and partly because of self preservation. Right. Which also, I'll argue there, that it's also a lack of vision. 
because this 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 concept I don't know where I got this from. It's not my own phrase, but I call it creative destruction. Mm. And it basically goes like this: if you're not actively you as a company, if you're not actively working to make your current business model irrelevant, someone else will. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know so yeah, is, Bill Gates, I think, said something like the the only companies that will survive in the modern era will be those that obsolete their own products before their competitors do. That's creative destruction right there. So why didn't Visa, Mastercard, uh, or the banking system create Bitcoin? Would be the question. Yeah, like a vision would be my answer. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, so and it, it's difficult to see. Yes, yes, it's going to, it's going to transform the system. Yes, it's going to make certain jobs obsolete. But it's also going to create a whole new industry. Like, I tell you, the thing that the cryptocurrency industry is short of is developers. So for every banker that goes out of that, gets, you know, gets made obsolete or redundant, well, you know, they can reskill as a developer. And there is an argument against that. People say, well, you're not going to lose two banker jobs for every one developer. I don't buy it. I don't buy that, to be honest. Because if you're entrepreneurial, you'll create your own job. That's the key. That that's. I think that's one of the biggest tidal waves coming with all of these different um, leverages of new technology, automation, artificial intelligence, things like that. That no, there won't be one new job created for everyone lost, but there'll be more, probably two opportunities created for every job lost. But you're going to have to reach out, grab that opportunity, and make something out of it. Someone's not going to do that for you and go, right, here's, you know, you were making 80K over here, now here's 80K over here, here's your benefits package, off you go. That's not going to happen. Right. Exactly. Because that kind of stuff, pension, benefits package, etc., that's actually based in the old financial system. Yeah. With exchange-traded funds, uh, retirement funds, traded on the stock market, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, stop thinking like that because the, the whole paradigm changes in the cryptocurrency space. Now, you've said something that I think is maybe a bigger reason for resistance than the the the, the you know the, just the the stuff we've been talking about itself. You've said that there'll be a transition from vertically integrated organizations to mm -hmm. networked organizations that's gradually going to transform society. And what yes. that means is you're taking power from a consolidation point and distributing power evenly across the platform so that everybody kind of has maybe not the same results but the same opportunity at the table. Right. That seems exactly. like something that if you are in the business of monopoly, you're not real hip about. So can you kind of describe this transition and what that's going to look like in your opinion? Of course. It's kind of at odds with biology because uh, in biology, uh, in apes and so on, there's, uh, there's actually positive brain chemicals that are associated with being the alpha. So as we climb up the hierarchy in the animal kingdom, you get rewarded with dopamine and all the positive brain chemicals. So we are biologically rigged to seize power, right? That's why the politicians, bankers, at least the corruption, because you want more power, just like a drug, the more you get of it, the more you get of it, the more you need of it, you know, the more you want it, etc. So, and there's no end to it, and it just becomes cancerous, right? So that's why you resist um, the dissemination of power into a network-style organization. However, I believe this is a natural part of the evolution of our society that cannot be stopped because uh, it's just going to happen. It's just that it's our time. If you look through civilization and just the different parts of um, history and how societies transform over time, this is just the next thing, right? I don't think it's ever been done before because we haven't been this evolved before. So 
I'll start here by saying, like, again, I start off with a, a premise that we live in a universe of opposites. Everything is defined by its opposite. So the pair, the pair of opposites that applies in this particular topic is like the subjective and the objective. So objective meaning something that is always the case in every case. So you drop the same hammer from one meter off the ground in Los Angeles in Fiji, and it will hit the ground in exactly the same amount of time every time, right? Doesn't matter if you're black, white, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's objective. So we can say that objective is what is true for everybody, right? And then the subjective, meaning what is true for each individual. And this would be, say, my personal opinions, my preferences, my point of view, how I see the world, right? That's almost the complete opposite, in the sense that it differs from one person to the next. Now, for centuries, I'd say since the invention of the scientific method, we've been running on the assumption that everything can be discovered and known by devising and running some kind of scientific experiment and studying the world out there, right? And that would be the 100% objective view of the world, right? We figure out how the world works and then we adjust our actions accordingly. So from that point of view, what you would end up with is these vertically integrated organizations, hierarchies of power where the guy at the top knows the truth, right? And uh, makes the decisions for everyone else. And then just everyone just gets on with it, no matter whether they can see something else that might be valuable, right? Person on the shop floor, facing the customer day to day might notice that people are tending to not be able to reach a particular product on the top shelf and might think, well, why don't you put it on the next shelf down, right? The boss isn't going to listen to that, right? You're just a subordinate on the shop floor, right? Because they, they know, right? They know, <laughs> even though they don't know. They, this actually even leads to, that thinking even leads to companies operating out of these high-rise buildings. That actually mirrors the very worldview oh, yeah. of... Organization charts, you know, the guy in the penthouse, the top floor, he's the most important with the most power. And you start in the mailroom, which is like the ground floor. It's literally. Or in the basement, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? At the basement, even worse, like in the server room or something. Yeah. It's literally the physical manifestation of the way we think about it, right? So, I mean, that's a very literal, nothing metaphysical about that. The, the mental models, the thoughts we use about the world end up becoming the world in that sense. If you think in hierarchies, you build in hierarchies. Pretty straightforward, right? Now, more recently, though, we've um, we've seen that this purely objective approach has some limitations because there are certain aspects to our experience that are very individual, right, and not easily explainable by any kind of repeatable experiment. And that's the the individual point of view that we have on the world, right? So it means that the way we see the world affects how we interact with it. But then our actions, in turn, have an impact on the world and changes the world. So there's this kind of two-way relationship. There's a give and take. There's like a two-way flow of information between the, the world out there that we go out and experience, but then we go, hmm, we respond to it, and we act on the world, start a business, insult somebody, whatever. That actually changes the world out there. So we give information back. That changes the world. We then look at the world again, and there's this give and take, right? This to and fro. So... In order to align with that way of seeing the world, where there's this balance between the subjective and the objective, the very structure of organizations needs to change to a much more dynamic approach to allow this give and take between you know, the objective out there and the subjective in here, which I'm pointing to my chest right now. So that's what a network organization would do. It would flatten everything down. Everyone still has a different role, 
or the idea of one individual or even a board of directors making decisions for the whole organization isn't very wise since the, that CEO only has one point of view, one set of eyes, one set of ears, you know, and so on, or even the board of directors only has a very limited perspective on the world versus, let's use Walmart, millions of employees, millions of eyeballs, millions Absolutely. of people all over the country, right? All that data coming through human beings that can't easily be put in a graph or a spreadsheet and you can't really act on that information in the same way that an individual could, seeing someone in the shop can reach the product and literally the next time they're stacking the shelves, they put the toilet roll on the next shelf deck, right? Boom. <laughs> Instant solution to the problem based on real-world problem they saw in the store. You know, you're making me laugh because I was just telling my wife yesterday, I don't know what brought it up, but I said, you know, we used to have kind of these, these satirical sayings back when I was in corporate America in the grind, and one of them was, simple solutions to complex problems will not be tolerated in this organization, right? We, we just can't have that, but that's, that's kind of what we're talking about, but having accuracy because, as you said, blockchain, blockchain technology is a truth teller. Like, mm -hmm. if something's really occurring over and over again, well, then we can audit it and we can look at it. And if, it, if, we, if we make the claim that it's occurring and it's not, as long as we develop some mechanism to gather that data, then we can say, well, this is a perception, not a reality. Mm -hmm. And that really does kind of lessen the value of the CEO because now it's much less a judgment and far more a decision based on fact that any reasonably educated human being might be able to make. They can't reach it. That's why they're not buying it, so move it down there. And that's just one example. Um, mm -hmm. can, can you talk more about how like this concept would specifically impact and improve the well-being of an individual on a day-to-day on -day basis? Why should anybody care? It's a good question. So I'd say for the, from an individual on a day-to-day -day basis, say let's use work as the example, it would lead to a way of working where we as individuals would have a lot more autonomy, you know, a lot more creative freedom uh, to, to use like our individual gifts, talents, and abilities. That's that subjective thing. I honestly believe that every individual has a unique recipe of gifts, talents, and abilities and strengths that nobody else has in the same combination. You might share this gift or that gift or that talent with someone else, but the actual individual recipe that you possess is 100% individual, which means there is a specific role for you to play in the world. There are specific problems, you know, perspectives that only you have. Mm. It's just a question of finding it, like, you know, your podcast the other day was talking about. So it will create a much more fertile environment, and I use the word environment carefully there, for, for each of us to then maximize our potential. And I have this, you know, a person is the seed, and if you have a tropical seed and you plant it in the United Kingdom, you ain't going to get no plant, right? You ain't going to grow no bananas, no pineapples, <laughs> right? Yeah. The, yeah. the seed has the potential to become coconut tree, right? You plant it in the wrong environment with it's not fertile, nothing's going to happen. Gotcha. Right? There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the environment. It's just a, simply a mismatch. So the human with the gifts, talents, and abilities, that's the seed of potential. It's just a case that the environment is not ripe, right? We have these hierarchical infrastructures with these egotistical buses who you know, won't take feedback from people. And So I'm stereotyping a bit there. Well, and hold on, let me help you with that, because even if you had the most benevolent 
organization in a company mm -hmm. that truly did actually read the cards that went into the suggestion box instead of using them as, uh, I don't know, they throw them in the shredder and use them for the kids' gerbils at home or something. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they did everything they could. The structure itself is inadequate to allow each individual to fully express what their talents are for that organization. It just yes. it can't function that way because because it can't. It's like trying to put if you try to put ten thousand cars on a, on a two lane road at one time, it doesn't work. You get a traffic jam. You need a much different infrastructure for that number of vehicles to move. Right. No, I respect earlier on when I was saying never blame the person, blame the system. It's not the CEO's fault. It's that when you say it's a systemic problem, it's a problem with the system that everyone's participating in. So it, it's, it's that. Um, even giving someone permission to do something, that's a problem. You shouldn't have to ask for permission. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I mean, Google's, Google's done a, a reasonably good job of this, which is one of the reasons why I think they've been so successful. People tend to think, well, of course Google can have beanbags and colored offices and free organic food in the cafe, and they've got the money to do it. And I think, no, 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 no. I think it might have <laughs> been the other way around. I yeah. think it might be the fantastic creative ideas that come out of Google are because they have created this fertile environment for the human potential to flourish, right? And it requires the vision. Um, and I suppose selecting the right people and putting them in the right places to get the plants that you want, you know, to use that metaphor. Got you, man. Um, if people want to, like, accelerate this move, speed it up, get, get us two networked organizations faster, what actions can they take to, to try to precipitate that? Better question, because it loops us right back to the world of cryptocurrencies. Because in my view, that is the single best, best way to do this. And blockchain technology is, has given rise to what we in the industry call DAOs, D-A-Os, or Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. Now, now, there was something called the DAO, but that's only one specific project that hijacked the name. It, to me, that was daft, because it's almost like calling your company the internet. It just doesn't make any sense. So that just tends to confuse people. A DAO is a thing, like a network. It's not a company. So then calling their project that was uh, didn't make much sense to me. Anyway, a DAO is one of these network organizations. Anyone can set one up, and it provides this decentralized and you know, flat management structure that spreads the power to make decisions and to run the organization across a whole crowd of people rather than just you know, a board of directors who are sat in some high-rise building far away, disconnected from their customers, right? And there's actually a platform that uh, some smart people have built for this. It's called Wings. If you want to check that out, Wings.ai, I think it's called. And what they've done is they've built a toolkit to allow you to just go on there and set up your own DAO, right? You can do it if you wanted to do like a crowdfund. You create a DAO for a specific thing, a non-profit, anything. You know, the only prerequisite for starting a DAO is having a project with a purpose, And then you put it out there, and if enough people think that's a good idea, if it's a problem they think needs solving, some people put money behind it, the DAO is born. It may last 25,000 years, it might last two years until the project's complete. That is also, I just thought of this actually, that's another thing that I think is um, a problem with the existing way that we approach the economy. It's almost like we don't want to categorically solve problems. We just want profit. 
So what we do is we start businesses and business models that will sustain profit rather than sort the problem out. So the, the best types of businesses, not the best types, but the best types of businesses for profit are ones that sell you know remedies for symptoms, whether that be health or otherwise, right? Sure, if you're a drug company and you cure a disease, you put yourself out of business. Right, but if you treat right. a disease, you make billions of dollars. Exactly. So just like a drug dealer, right, on the street, you don't, you make money on the comeback. Like every yeah. time the person comes back and uh, the more addicted they get, the more they'll pay because it's excruciating not to. So that's another one of those creative destruction things. We, and, and again, it's based on our lack of vision. If, if the history of humanity has taught us anything is that today's problems are actually the result of yesterday's solutions. And that, chain of cause and effect is going to continue forever. So every time we invent something that seems like, you know, a miracle solution, well, it gives it gives way to a new set of problems. It's, it's an Einstein quote, I think it is, where he says we can't solve problems at the level of thinking we were at when we created them. So Absolutely. that would be that would be like, okay, let's see, oh, fossil fuels, right? Look at this release of energy, you know, great. Cool. But then, of course, that has its own knock-on effects, like pollution, polluting the seas or tanker crashes and causes an ecological disaster or whatever. And again, okay, that's maybe not such a good idea. So we're always in the process of becoming. So to, to think there's going to be a, I don't think a utopia is, we're never going to arrive because that would mean that the evolution of society would cease. We're always going to, even, even cryptocurrencies, they seem like the greatest thing since sliced bread right now, but they're going to give birth to a whole other set of problems, right? Yeah. So there'll always be something for us to do as humans. There'll always be more problems to solve, more creativity to be um, exhibited, more gifts, talents, and abilities to be applied, you know. And that's my attitude. It makes me an optimist because I'm like, hey, I'm gonna be. I'm never gonna retire. Me, I'm never gonna retire. Not for meaningful projects anyway. I'm always going to be working on the next thing, and I pride myself on genuinely trying to attack problems at the root to categorically solve them. Even though, like I just said, it will give birth to a whole new problem, but at least. That one's nailed, and that can be one to another one. Absolutely. Um, you, you, well, you're, well, you're, all this talk, you're, you're kind of making me think about something that's, that's beginning to develop now. I started talking about this concept before there was one. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. sure work was already going on to make them, but the concept of like a virtual nation. Uh, mm -hmm. Bit Nation's the one that I think, I, I don't know that any of them have got, you, you, you were talking earlier, too, you are talking about the mind can go faster than we can actually get there. So... Yeah. You know, way back before any of these things surfaced, I was describing all these things they could do. So when they showed up, I'm like, great. And I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. do the stuff. Like, enable the things that I was talking about. You know, I was like, we, there's no reason. If you and I went to, into business together for some type of a contract and we got into a, a situation where there was a breach of that contract, I felt it or you felt that it wasn't being honored If that was done in a blockchain environment, there's no need for the state's court system. Right. Right. That 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 system can be completely fair enough. Even if we there's a subjective component to it, an arbitrator through that system would be far more fair, far more impartial, far more likely to give us a result that we would both be able to live with. So arbitration could move to the blockchain. Marriage could move to the blockchain. Identification, uh, affiliations, all of these things could move into a blockchain-like environment and, and essentially create virtual nations. And when I came up with this thought and put it out publicly on the air, my own listeners, that will never work. You know, that can't happen. But, and my point was, 
if you get a large enough block of human beings in one thing doing business one way, then other human beings will want to do business with them, right? Yes. And you'll get recognition and you'll get um, validation purely through numbers, even in their system. So, sure, maybe the U.S. government and the U.K. government wouldn't be too hip on this, but if you had 100 million people that said they were citizens of, uh, you know, Chris Coney land, um, Coney Island. right, <laughs> right, then <laughs> countries like Ecuador or something might think there's some value to be gained there, and all of a sudden you start getting actual peer-to-peer -peer recognition from a recognized state. Uh, not necessarily what you really want, but maybe you need it to go forward and advance the next level. What are your thoughts on like virtual nations and, and what can be done with that type of world? That's a good, good little spiel there, actually. You did. Because that's already happened. Julian Assange is an Ecuadorian citizen uh, actually living in the UK. Yeah. In the embassy. So he's physically on the land mass that we call the United Kingdom, England, London. But he's actually an Ecuadorian citizen. What the hell's going on there, right? Yeah. So it, it's it's all just it's all virtual as it is. It's just a piece of paper that says this guy is a citizen of Ecuador, um, and he's a little piece of Ecuador right in the middle of London. What what why is that right? So that is already a kind of a virtual extension of the Ecuadorian nation, right? Absolutely. So I, I'm not quite sure where where this will lead. The one thing I will say about this um, this virtual nation stuff is that it, what's a nation? It's, it's just a governance system. It's a set of rules by which we want to be governed. And I guess traditionally, a nation is a landmass, like Germany or England or Ireland or whatever. And when you're in that geographic boundary, you are bound by these rules. But just because you are on that particular soil, the rules and the laws of the land, as they're called, they're not laws of the land. The laws aren't in the soil. It's no. not in the land itself, right? It's just that that's what the consensus is or the... The governing body has decided that is the rule of law. But um, what's to say that you couldn't voluntarily opt into a different set of standards? And what's that got to do with the piece of the earth that I'm stood on? Nothing. Not really. Right? There's, I watched an interesting YouTube video that's based on a, a book about how you could privatize the legal system and how we could each voluntarily opt into the legal system that operated based on how we prefer it to work. And I guess... Um, what do you call them? smart contracts are a good way to do that and you, like you were saying with these third party arbitrators like if we, you and I fell out and we had a contract that was in a smart contract and even if there was a bit of ambiguity there you would have this anonymous third party arbitrator that would judge on it right? a randomly selected person who would get paid for it because there would be a bit of a piece in the, in the transaction for them and they would just look at the facts and, and decide And then we would we would accept the results and uh, and get on with our lives, right? And, and we would probably both then within the blockchain itself rate that as yes. were we treated fairly, you know? Because obviously, if I lose, I'm not going to like the outcome. But if the arbitrator does a good job, then most of the time I'm going to admit that I was treated fairly. Uh, and I found a lot of times private arbitration. What ends up happening is the two parties end up going, yeah, we can come. It never even finishes because as a, as a legitimate third party that's not 
a, a, an arm of the state that's just there to be paid and to enforce a ruling. An arbitrator should be in there not to decide who's right, but to help arbitrate the disagreement. And as soon as that starts to happen, a lot of times, I go, you know what, Chris, you're right on this point. Can you concede on that? Yeah, okay, let's do that. We're done. And then we both have a very positive right. So the better arbitrator is going to be the one that people want to select because mm. when, when I see that, you know, this arbitrator has a, a, a five-star rating, let's say, for people that won, well, that's great. But if I see he has like a four-star rating for people that lost, yes, I want that guy, right? Yes. And, and I think that, you know, then you get into things like, well, what if, what if you and I have chosen different legal systems but we somehow collide? Well, then that's another place where a third-party arbitrator can say, there are universal constants. You can't steal Chris's stuff, right? right. Even your own legal system says you can't steal Chris's stuff, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that would be a, a, an incredible opportunity, I think, to – and if you want to talk about resistance, though, right? You think the banking system doesn't like the ideas we're talking about. Imagine mm -hmm. if you're the state and yeah. you start to realize, like, the, the way I feel it is they're like, they know, They know it's all bullshit. They know it's all a lie. They know that we're controlling them with, with, with illusion, and they're starting to develop their own clear pathway toward self-governance. And, and that's mm. got to be terrifying if you're a bureaucrat. Yes. There's, um, there's a video on YouTube. It's called The Story of Your Enslavement. Yep. And actually, have you ever seen this? Yes, yes. Okay, Stephen Mullen, right? Yeah. Um, and he chronicles how governments systematically created greater and greater uh, illusions of freedom, right? It looked like greater and greater freedoms, but it was literally because there was some resistance from the people. Um, so they thought, okay, 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 let's give them a bit of rope, right? Let's make them feel a bit freer so they'll stay compliant, right? Yeah. The trouble is that, you know, over time, they've had to let more and more of the rope out, right? And now we're stood way away from them, right? Like if you think of a dog on a leash, right? We are stood miles away and quite, quite a lot of freedom, and uh, they may be out of rope, right? So if we tug on it, they might actually let go of the rope because there's no more, you know, there's no more rope left. Absolutely, and, and and they figured out over time how to get the slave to feed himself and clothe himself and take care of his own medical needs and all under the illusion of greater freedom, but yet in some ways greater control. I mean, yes. if you think of what a state can do to one of its citizens today just because it becomes displeased with them uh, without arresting them. Just oh, basically it making it implausible. Asset forfeiture. Where do you go mm -hmm. to? Where do you go to fight that? Well, you you, you don't. They, you you now have the burden of proving innocence rather than them having the burden burden of proving guilt, even though you've been convicted of nothing. Like that's that's that's. But if your assets are uh, secured with a mnemonic device in this 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 mystical ether in the form of a cryptocurrency, well, good luck. Yes. Good luck. That brings me on to, like, our identities are virtual in this world. So how do we identify ourselves? With huh. government documents. Yes. Right? My passport, my driving license, it's all an identity granted to me by the government. So and given that we're increasingly having digital records, like Andreas Antonopoulos says, if you join the wrong protest or you say the wrong thing, boom, switch, you no longer exist. As a person, you talk about identity theft. Yeah. Like identity deletion. Yeah. Huh. Oof. It's it's, yeah. it's and it's it's to me it's why I'm very encouraged that the government did resist this and that the corporatocracy did resist this because oh, I yeah. feel I, I feel like now 
the genie's way too far out of the bottle where even if they embrace it, like they can't they can't own it. It's like you know, I don't know if you know this or not. The, the U.S. government tried to take over email way back in the day, and really? it was it was already there was like you know twenty or thirty private email providers when they thought oh, and they were going to charge per message, and they thought people would pay them because they would get the assurance of government with it, and it was just like we we don't need that. But had they gone first, it's conceivable they might own email today. So the fact that they resisted it is a blessing because if they hadn't, then there wouldn't be you know ten thousand independent geniuses out there developing different platforms to use this stuff. Yes, I don't think that would have worked anyway because once the email protocol was out there, just like a cryptocurrency, if the state gets their hand on Bitcoin, everyone will just move. Yeah, like yeah. instantly all the value will switch to another one. Yeah, yeah, because they'll devalue it. That's why it's valuable. It's valuable because you don't touch it. So if you touch it, you'll you'll dilute the value to nothing, and everybody will leave. Now that's the problem. You see, yeah. that's that's inherently resilient. Yeah, and yeah. something you do about it. It's like a slippery bar of soap. You drink the harder you grip it, the quicker it shoots out of your hand. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. So um, one of the core values of this podcast is self sufficiency. How are the things you're talking about going to help people become more self-sufficient? Yes, good question. Well, Bitcoin in particular established like a new economy of its own based on a fundamentally different paradigm. So I, I have this diagram in my mind. It's, uh, imagine a circle on the left, a big circle. That would represent the old economy of, with fiat currencies and the old banking system and that includes all the world currencies, the dollars and the pounds and the euros, the yen, all of the paper-based currencies that aren't actually backed by anything other than the fact that they have, you know, a stamp on it that says the Bank of England or, you know, the Federal Reserve System and all that sort of stuff, right? It's not, it's not backed by anything other than the fact that we all agree to accept that as payment. That's really the only thing that gives it value. Um, and, and it kind of gains value by that increasing consensus, but it could also lose it. If one by one, I was like, I don't, I don't take dollars anymore, right? And then another, there's another, another, the value of it starts to go down because it's less useful. That's actually the opposite of what's happening to new currencies like Bitcoin is that every time a new person accepts its payment, it becomes more useful and it's a virtuous cycle. Not only that, that economic activity, someone you know buying a, a nail care or facial, whatever it is, their local beauty salon, they used to transact that economic value in dollars. But that's still going on. It's just exited the old financial system, which then we have this big circle on the left. There's now this new little circle on the right. It's an entirely different economy that exists outside of the economy that we've always known. And this is weird because this has never happened before. We've, we've been trapped inside that left bubble, that big circle. No matter where you go, you move your money here, there, everywhere, exchange it for this, that, the other, you're still in that prison because there's no alternative. And what the cryptocurrency economy has done, it's kind of opened a little tiny door next to it, and there's this other bump, bubble that's just bumping up against it. It's tiny right now, but there's a slow leak now of economic activity where people are voluntarily, interestingly, leaving that old system and joining the new system. And you can't say, no one can say, that they voluntarily chose the economy, the economic system that we have. And no. if there's only one choice, it's no. not really a choice, is it now? No, that's that mythi- mythical social contract they keep telling me about that I've never seen nor signed. 
I haven't signed it. Actually, that's, that's actually valid in UK law. Because really? the Queen has to sign every, everything into law. Okay. Um, there's, there's actually got this book. It's by, by someone anonymous who calls himself the Lioness. And it's, it's, it's called something like, so you think you've broken the law. Um, and it's, it points out these fundamental systemic flaws in UK law that if you, if you don't recognize the Queen's authority, all the laws are invalid, right? It sounds ridiculous, but it's a very little po- simple pocketbook. And, and it gives you all of the legalese that you like, get pulled over. You can basically say, you know, the law doesn't apply to me because I don't recognize the Queen's authority. It's quite interesting stuff. And, and that's kind of what you're talking about. Where, where I never, I never signed a piece of paper to say I would be bound by the, the you know, the royal family or whatever, right? And, and it's specific to the UK because the Queen has to sign every statute. You know, if I haven't given her that authority to speak for me, the law doesn't apply. So, huh. sorry, I have no legal expertise to validate that, but it's a very interesting idea, <laughs> to say the least. You know, so so where was that? Yeah, so the old financial system, right? It's very much about giving your money or your financial destiny to someone else to take care of. It's kind of the opposite of self-sufficiency, right? And there's a, there's a kind of famous guy in the Bitcoin industry, Andreas Antonopoulos, and he says, if history has proved anything, it's that if you give a company your money and they hold on to it, they'll eventually try and steal it. That's just the way it goes, right? Because it's, it's a resource and they'll just, human nature, they'll, it'll corrupt them and they'll try and steal it from you. So the Bitcoin economy at its very foundation requires us to take responsibility for ourselves, like our decisions and our money. And that new way of thinking, it can then have, it can have very, very positive knock-on effects. So once you get into the mindset of, okay, I have to take responsibility for my money, securing it, make sure I uh, spend it wisely and all this kind of stuff. Once you shifted your mindset to, well, I am responsible for my, for, for my own self-sufficiency, in terms of finance, that mindset can start to have a knock-on effect, and you start thinking about, huh, maybe I should take charge of my own health or my relationships, and, this, and you, start to, you start to become a much more empowered individual. So I see that as very positive. While I am a cryptocurrency advocate, I also am doing it with intent that convincing you to switch to a Bitcoin paradigm for money will actually help you in numerous other ways. You know, the, like the tagline for the podcast is, to um, help you when times get tough, or even if they don't. So becoming more resilient, more self-sufficient, that's critical if there's a crisis. But even if there isn't a crisis, you'll actually end up with a far better quality of life, even if it, even if just, everything just stays the same. Absolutely. Uh, and I, you know, one of the things I try to drive home about Bitcoin, I don't think people fully understand yet, the rules of production are known. And you mentioned a, a statement Earlier, every time a person decides to start using it, it's, yeah. it, it becomes it, it becomes more useful. It becomes better. Yes. It actually becomes better. Mm-hmm. Well, it also also becomes more valuable. Yes, right, because it has to. Because math, that's why. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> because once it once you, you you realize that there's this finite number, and the number that can be mined per year is declining rapidly at this point, mm-hmm. and there's only so much of it, the way it becomes. Functional, like if we try to do this with gold, it would be it wouldn't work because the the, the there's too many people. But the way Bitcoin it, it works, it, it's made almost infinitesimally fractionable. So you spend smaller and smaller pieces of Bitcoin to 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 rate, rate the same value. Well, mm-hmm. the, so this is a deflationary currency, meaning it grows in value over time. 
which if you want to really freak out the they've built everything on a deflationary economy right they they they've built yeah I'm so sorry they've built everything on an inflationary economy they've built everything they've done on the concept that money will be worth less tomorrow than it is today they've 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 built our need to invest in our retirement in a certain way on that model like you have mm -hmm. to you have to risk your money because if you don't it will be worth less by the time you retire. By default. By default. Yeah. So you must risk your money. Where imagine a world where your money actually gets, you actually are earning interest by keeping your money in a virtual mattress. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's powerful. And when you start to understand it that way, and people say, well, Bitcoin just went down, you know, 10%. And yeah, I don't care. That's not, right. it, it, frankly, it's been going up and up and up recently, but I'm sure there'll be other, you know, volatilities, but the long-term trend, unless people stop using it, can only go one direction. As more people use it, the value per unit must go up because it becomes more and more scarce. Correct. But it can't run out because we just can send, you know, a, a billionth of a piece if we had to. That's right. Every, broken into, every Bitcoin can be broken into 100 million pieces. Yeah. Which means, which means the day a single Bitcoin is worth $1 million, it means the smallest unit, which is a single Satoshi, would be about... Uh, pen. Oh, isn't that great? We can only <laughs> hope, right? So we also talk about liberty a lot here. We kind of touched on it some with like the virtual nations, but can you speak to how the blockchain, cryptocurrencies, etc., help uh, help the cause of liberty? Liberty, yes, indeed. So, like like I was saying about the rise of these DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations, which are flatter in nature. And so, cryptocurrencies do away with with the idea of these central control structures that are so easily abused, as we've been talking about, and corrupted, and, and are instead of replaced by individual sovereignty. That's the word I like to use. And sovereignty meaning, like, you're having the rights and ownership of yourself. Right? You own your own body, right? No one, no one else does. And you get to say what goes into it, food and everything else, um, and you get to, to say where it goes, like, in a cage or not in a cage. Right? That's what the government and the police have the authority to do, which is a lack of sovereignty. If they can take your body, which is your possession, and put it in a cage, I'm talking about a jail, then, well, that's not sovereignty, isn't it? Right? No. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, now, the idea of liberty and sovereignty, that doesn't guarantee prosperity, right? There's a key distinction there. But it does mean that success or failure, you will have the power in your own hands. And, and to me, that's like, that's the absolute key. Um, so that, that sovereignty is the key. And financial sovereignty, the, the, the ownership and the provable ownership of your possessions, whether it's Bitcoin or eventually when we get land and property titles on the blockchain, you know, it's that record of truth. Who owns this house, right? How do we categorically prove it? And how do we put it in a database, a blockchain, which is unchangeable unless the owner you know, signs that transaction to say, I have sold Jack my house. I hereby transfer ownership to him now, right? And I sign it, and it was me. It's cryptographically proven. Boom, right? No, no way to corrupt that. And again, that's now your house. It's publicly available. No one can get in there and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, change the land title or kick you out of your land because it's an immutable um record of the truth, and you can see who owned that house, you know, ever since it was built, who it was transferred, the ownership, when, 
and you can guarantee that every previous owner gave permission to transfer the ownership. <laughs> and so your title easy. company is no longer necessary, and that, that multi-thousand dollar component to buying a property is no longer necessary. Right. Great point. So the way to think about, like, what's a blockchain? Well, think of any industry where the whole industry is based on being a middleman. That's like anything with agency in the title, right? A record label, um, what did just do? <laughs> property company, yeah. you know, any, 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 any intermediary, anyone in between the two people doing the actual transaction, that whole industry can be replaced by a blockchain. Oh. I mean, that's, you know, Cell 411 is, is doing that in, a, in an app environment, but I think that mm -hmm. we can do that so much broader. Because if I want to do business with you and you want to do business with me, What need do we really have of anything other than that? And then if we do that, and I, see, what I believe is we're going to go to a trust-based system where Chris has done business with Jack, and Chris says, stand-up guy gave me exactly what I expected, kind of like Amazon reviews, but a much bigger, not just in that one platform, like this is across the board. And if, mm -hmm. if I have 30 or 40 people that I've done business with and – You can look and see not only that they all give me high trust, but they have trust from their interactions with others. All of a sudden, you don't need anybody to tell you, well, Jack's okay to do business with. I don't need a, a license by the state to say that I'm good to do business with because all that means is I've ticked some boxes and paid them their money. It doesn't actually mean that I'm good at what I do. But if, mm -hmm. if, if my customers say that I'm not only am I good at what I do, but I keep my word then you know you can trust me to do business with me. And, and in essence, the all the people that have done business with me and all the people that have done business with the people who have done business with me have now replaced that strict hierarchy you were talking about. Instead yes. of this one almighty person that says, I have stamped his card, you know, and, 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 and taken a smoke break and waited you know, an hour before stamping the next card. Uh, instead of that authority, the authority is now spread out. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Wow. I was really listening intently to that. I lost my That's okay, man. I want to actually talk a little bit about your website and your 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 educational platform you have, uh, Cryptoversity.com. Can you tell us what that's about and what people will find if they go there? Sure. If you can go to Cryptoversity.com, you'll find a range of courses that I've created with my very fair hands. And the um, little quick about Cryptoversity is that. You can get paid to learn. So the latest course I've released, uh, part of the course, you get to the point of learning about the basics of how to receive a Bitcoin transaction. And included with the course is you get a portion of the fee you pay sent back to you in Bitcoin. So you, you pay with a credit card, right? And then you get to the same point where it's like, I need to experience receiving Bitcoin for the first time. And the best person to send you something is me. So you just send me an email and say, can I have the free Bitcoin that comes with this course, please? And then I send it to the wallet that you just sell as part of the course. So it's kind of a nice, cute little uh, way of giving people the real experience and also getting them their first Bitcoin in a, in a way that where they don't have to trust anybody, right? And um, they've already kind of trusted me with the course in the first place. But it's a real experiential way of learning. Um, so I've got a course on, if you want to know the technical aspects of how the whole economic side of things works, um, I've got another one that's just about Okay, never mind the techie bits. How do I make money and save money with Bitcoin? Just tell me that, right? That's actually the latest one I brought out. And then there's a few other little quirky courses that you can take. But uh, yeah, there's also, I've got my own podcast if you want to talk about it. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Sure, so if you, if you don't want to spend any money, right, and you want to learn kind of over time, 
Then the Cryptoverse, which is like the universe of crypto, that's a podcast that I do every day of the week. Um, if every episode is about 12 to 15 minutes, and I do a bit of looking at the Bitcoin price, look at how the prices of different cryptocurrencies have changed, and then I do a bit of news and commentary on what's going on in the Bitcoin world. So if you if you listen to the Cryptoverse long enough, I'll drop enough pails of wisdom where you'll you'll learn a lot from that without actually having to take a course. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and, and again, the website is cryptoversity.com. I will have That's a link nice. in today's show notes for people. So if you come by the site and look at episode, uh, 1953, which is our episode today and, uh, trying to get on that site and having any trouble spelling it, uh, you just click the link and get on over there. And, and dude, I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, this is a, a great interview. I'm sure the, the audience has taken a lot away from it. Uh, final question for you. Favorite yes. wallet? Favorite wallet? <laughs> nice and easy question. That's not, that's a question. <laughs> in, um, in that new, new course that was created, which is literally for people who are starting from scratch, I start people off with the blockchain.info wallet. Okay. Right? It's a web wallet. A lot of uh, more advanced crypto people will... will Kick my ass for that, um, but because they like, oh no, you know, it's a, it's a web wallet. It's blah, blah. yeah, fine. It's the simplest one, right? It's the simplest one. It's secure, and ultimately, it, it's the simplest one to start with. Okay, the, the actual best wallet to use is a hardware wallet, right? Which is a little thing you put on your key ring, which is something you have to have plugged into your physical computer every time you want to authorize a transaction. So your wallet key is inside a little physical device. It kind of looks like a USB memory stick, but it has the private key inside the hardware device. So that key was never, ever touched the internet. And, and that means it's the, it's the safest way to store any kind of cryptocurrency, because unless you've got the physical hardware key, um, every time you try and send money out of your Bitcoin wallet, you have to have that physical device plugged into the computer and then you have to enter your PIN number. Is there so any way to create redundancy with that? Because it would seem like electronics fail sometimes. Sure. I mean, they're, they're like, um, and technologically, they're pretty robust, right? Okay. However, yeah, I see what you mean. When you first initialize a Bitcoin hardware wallet, um, you write down the what's called a recovery seed, right? which is basically a way of rebuilding your key. If the hardware wallet were to die, you can just take that recovery phrase and then uh, rebuild your private key and put it into a, a brand new wallet if you ever want to do that. And that means you know writing out on a physical piece of paper, putting it in a safe, so that if your hardware wallet did ever die, you can still recover your money. Gotcha. Very cool. Very cool, man. Well, hey, I've appreciated it again. Website is uh, cryptoversity.com. Link in the show notes. And, Chris, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, man. Enjoyed it. All right, this is a great interview. I sure learned a lot. You guys definitely want to check out Chris's website and learn more about his work. Good guy. Anyway, with that knocked out, I want to remind you, you can help support this show in a really easy, painless, no direct cost way. Um, if you're going to buy something on Amazon at any time, all you have to do if you want to support my show is go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, click go, you see a link. Click that link, you go to Amazon, you buy your stuff. Doesn't matter what you buy, doesn't matter how you order it, whether it's overnight shipping or standards, it doesn't matter. 
All you got to do is click our link first, and anything you buy will help support our show. And it won't cost you any more. It won't change anything about buying it on Amazon. Amazon won't charge you a, a TSP service fee to do this. They'll simply pay us a commission for referring your business. It's, it's such a win-win, and it's such an easy way to support the show. I really ask you to consider doing it. I'm, I'm kicking around an idea, too. I'm kicking around an idea of every day... Uh, putting out an item that's just a, a, like a quick link, like it would be in the item of the day maybe, um, the the, uh, the user item of the day. You see, when you buy stuff on Amazon, I can't see, let's say, uh, Joe Blow in Arkansas bought, I, I don't know, a Darth Vader costume, right? But around Halloween, I actually did see that somebody bought an adult Darth Vader costume. And what I thought, and if I could do this with no effort, it would be kind of cool, is that every day I'll just randomly pick an item that's not one I featured and say, uh, our, our item of the day today was was uh, the following, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And if, if you're that person and you come comment uh, in, that, in that post, it, it was me, I'll put you into a drawing. And then at like, you know, we'll run it all through from now through the summer so we get a bunch of people in the drawing. And I'll reach out to some of our vendors to get some cool stuff. And, uh, or maybe I'll just come up with something on my own, but maybe we draw three names and there's three winners out of that group. It actually wouldn't be a really big group, but it would be a good kind of community thing. You could see what other members of your community are buying and using. And probably a lot of it will be non-survival, non-prepper, non-homestead related. I put some stuff out that's just general lifestyle stuff, but most of the stuff I try to stick to is things that, you know, fit what we do here. So if you think that's a cool idea, let me know. If there's more than a few people interested in it, I'll do it. Unless people are going to come say, yeah, that was me that bought that. And people will say, well, what if two people bought the same thing on the same day? Uh, okay, then you're both in. I, I'm not going to be a nitpicker like that. I mean, come on. Anyway, I thought it would be cool. And there is some kind of cool stuff that shows up in there at times. And I'm like, what is that? Just like see the name in there. Like, click on it just to see what the item is. Uh, and I thought that might be fun just for – it's because this is a big community. And being able to see what other people are doing, you know, without giving away any personal information, you would only, you know – give your information if you wanted to, and you could basically just give me a screen name. You just have to pay attention when we do the drawing. Um, it doesn't seem like it would take any real extra work for me to do. I could just go in there and randomly, you know, I don't know, pick the last item on the third page of the daily report from the day before, and whatever it is, it is, as long as it's not something I featured. If it is, then just pick the next item off the list. just seems kind of cool. I do have a review for you today on T-SPAS and on the website. Um... Today I have the Porter Cable 9-inch pruning reciprocating saw blades. Uh, those that have been a member of this audience a long time know that I, I have long recommended a reciprocating saw, a.k.a. a sawzall, when doing tree pruning and cutting small trees and working with small slash and stuff like that over a chainsaw because it's flatly safer. When you let go of a reciprocating saw, the blade stops moving. When you let go of a chainsaw uh, throttle, the blade continues to spin. And I've actually seen some pretty horrific injuries in chainsaws over the years. And in almost every case, the throttle had been released when the injury occurred. And yet the injury was pretty horrific. My father-in-law, uh, with a small electric chainsaw, just really tore up two of his fingers Exactly the situation. Throttle's not on, but the the, the chain's still moving. Uh, I've also noticed that I've seen four in my life, four chainsaw injuries. None of these injuries occurred when the person was felling a large tree 
or bucking a large tree, or taking slash off a large tree. It's always in dealing with bushy stuff, little stuff, small trees, trying to use a chainsaw, more like a weed eater. What happens is stuff gets in the way, and there's this rule. Two hands on the saw at all times, as long as the blade is moving. And if you follow that rule, then you probably will never hurt yourself with a chainsaw. Because if you get kicked back or something, the chain break's going to engage. I've been using a chainsaw, honest to God, since I was 12 years old, and thank God I have never hurt myself. But I've always followed that rule. And it makes me think of something my grandfather taught me. My grandfather told me this. I remember the exact words. Moving machines and tools have no sympathy, no conscience, and no respect for human beings. They don't care if they're cutting wood and metal or flesh and bone. You are the one with the brain, so act like it. But what happens in those situations, sooner or later you get someone you just let go And that's always been the way I've seen people get hurt. Topping trees, whatever. And I realized with a, with a reciprocating saw, you can use one hand to put tension on a tree and, and use the saw one-handed and cut flush to the ground. You can get distance because it's lighter. And if, if, if you have any concerns whatsoever and you let go of that switch, then it stops. You know, I, I, I've seen a lot of people hurt with a lot of power tools I've never seen anybody hurt with a reciprocating saw if they were the one running it. Uh, maybe if you put your hand right next to where you're cut, that would be stupid. Don't do that. Uh, but even then, there's only so much damage you're going to do. I've seen people cut other people with a reciprocating saw. So I'm going to give you a little safety advice here. When it comes to using chainsaws and saws and anything like that, this is my rule. If I can move, if, without moving my feet, I can reach out and touch you with it stretch even, you are too close. You don't need to be that close to me. I don't need you to hold material, etc. There's better ways to do it. So all of that said, when you're using a reciprocating saw for small stuff, it is inherently safer than a chainsaw. I've tried a lot of specialty blades and stuff like that. They're expensive. The one best company I found was called T-Rex. They went out of business. They were trying to make a living on one product. That's really hard to do. Um, but these Porter cable blades are mass market. If you look at the blade profile, they look like a small bow saw. That's why they work so damn good. They're about $3 and 60, 67 cents, something like that a piece. You get a, a, a nine pack or a three pack for like nine something. Um, I, I really recommend them highly, but I also recommend reciprocating saws highly. And well, not the item of the day. Uh, if you don't own a reciprocating saw, I have two suggestions for them in the notes. I'm a DeWalt guy. If I ever do cut myself, I'll probably bleed black and yellow. Um, but um, brand loyalty goes so far. Well, I already have DeWalt stuff. I've already gotten the adapters for the 20-volt lithium batteries. Any new DeWalt tools I use, I'm going to use the 20-volt lithium batteries. Um, so if I buy more tools, I can buy bare tools uh, and, and get a decent price. And the bare tool DeWalt 20-volt max reciprocating sounds like $107. And it's a damn good saw. It really is a damn good saw. I have an old school 18-volt uh, one, and I have, with the adapter, it runs the new 20-volt battery, so I probably won't pick a new one up. But if I needed a new one, I needed another one, I would get that. If I, had, if I didn't have DeWalt stuff, if I didn't have batteries and chargers for something already, Porter Cable, same people that make this blade, uh, they have right now on Amazon a 20-volt saw, 20-volt drill, a battery and a charger that come in a case together. For $109. Porter Cable makes good tools. That's a good deal. If I was right now needing a reciprocating saw, 
and I didn't already have the wall batteries and electronics and stuff like that, and I was choosing between those two, I'd buy the pointer cable. That's hard to admit, but I would. Um, and if I already had drills or whatever, it's another drill. Two is one, one is none. You're basically getting the drill for free at that price, the way I look at it. So those links are in that review. There's also a video of me that's over almost seven years old. Uh, I, I have a lot more belly and a lot less gray hair, uh, but I'm doing some work in Arkansas or Homestead up there with the, with a reciprocating saw. So all of that to T-Spaz today. Anyway, uh, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. The song of the day today, as I said, is one of the most covered songs that there is. Uh, it was covered a lot in the 70s and 80s, but it became the number one song of the year this year in 1953. It's called Vaya con Dios. Vaya con Dios, my darling. Vaya con Dios, my love. I remember Julio Iglesias did a very, very successful cover of this song. But do you know who did this song originally? Well, there was a gal that's the voice of this song, and uh, her name is Mary Ford. But do you know who plays the guitar in this? Les Paul. Yes, that Les Paul. Lester William Polfus himself, Les Paul, of guitar fame. Les Paul. This doesn't sound what you think of like Les Paul, but this is Les Paul playing in Viacondias. Les Paul to me is a cat that really got everything out of life. I talked about following your passion yesterday. This guy followed his passion If you go to the Wikipedia page for Les Paul, um, you'll see a picture of him playing a Gibson Les Paul at the Iridium Jazz Club in New York City in 2008. Uh, Les Paul left this earthly plane uh, in August of 2009 at 94. So in that picture, he's 93 years old, cruising and getting down. Uh, and it, 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 it's a, that's a lifetime of making incredible music. This was a cool song. And it sticks with kind of this phase in American music where it was all about the love songs and all about the baby boomers being boomed out. It's going to start to change over the next couple of years. But for today, enjoy this, this classic old song. This has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. dark, the town is sleeping Now the time has come to part the time for weeping Vaya con Dios my darling Vaya con Dios my love Now the village mission bell are softly ringing If you listen with your heart you'll hear them singing Vaya con Dios my darling Vaya con Dios my love Wherever you may be Many million dreams 
Vaya con Dios. 